Good afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. You will receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity. And if you're viewing online, the evaluation link will be listed in the links icon at the bottom of the screen. And if you have a question, please enter it into the Q&A chat and we'll ask Dr. Tekla at the end. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Paul Tekla. He is one of our third year internal medicine residents. He is originally from Cairo, Egypt and moved to New York when he was 15. Dr. Takla attended American University of the Caribbean for medical school. He will be working as a hospitalist at UMass in Massachusetts, and he is interested in improving patient communication and experience, diagnostic dilemmas, preventative medicine, and reducing barriers to care. Join me in welcoming Dr. Takla. Thank you. Um, thanks to everyone who's here for coming and everyone online. So uh, my grandma's presentation today is about uh, um, opioid substitution therapy. Um, my focus is gonna be mostly on the inpatient setting. Um, we're not going to be talking too much about pharmacology or pathophysiology. It's mostly gonna be practical. So disclosure wise, I don't have any. Um, not yet. Learning objectives. So we're going to try to kind of work on um, improving our knowledge uh, regarding opioids and opioid substitution uh, options, uh, decreasing the stigma around uh, opioid use disorder, improving the ability to, to identify patients who are at risk for withdrawal, uh, understanding some of the pharmacology for buprenorphine and methadone, uh, improve our ability to manage hospitalized patients on either medication, uh, increase the use of our hospital's uh, withdrawal protocols, and learn who can start patients on opioid substitution therapy, because that has recently changed, and connect patients with resources uh, for opioid use disorder. So a bit of background. Um, opioid use disorder is uh, when opioid use causes significant impairment and distress in patients. Uh, it affects uh, at least 2.7 million people in the U.S. This number has increased significantly uh, over the past 20 years or so, in part due to um, unethical uh, marketing by some pharmaceutical companies. Um, for their opioid medications, and in part due to uh, different um, uh, periods where we had um, epidemics of uh, increase of, of use in things like heroin and fentanyl. Uh, the CTC estimates that more than 108,000 people um, had um, drug overdose related deaths in the past 12 months. So, this is the most recent graph uh, provided by uh, the National Center for Health Statistics. And that takes us all the way uh, until April uh, of 22. Um, and as you can see, the <clears throat> opioid-related uh, overdose death has been going up uh, for essentially the past, uh, I can see over the past seven years, and that's in black. I know that the 
it's hard to read the which which line is which. The black one is the opioids, um, and blue is heroin. And surprisingly, uh, heroin overdose has actually gone down, uh, partially because of uh, the fact that we have some available medications that are that every EMS personnel has that kind of has prevented some of the deaths. But opioids are still climbing. Most very very recently, there is a trend down though. Uh, diagnosing opioid use disorder. So um, it's in the DSM-5. There are 11 criteria, which I'm going to list uh, next. And if you've got uh, two positive criteria, uh, two to three is mild, four to five is moderate, and severe is six or more. Um, so here um, on the uh, graph, you can see uh, that change over the past 12 months um, in terms of um, predicted 12-month overdose deaths in different states. And more specifically to us in Georgia, this has kind of been worsening. So uh, the range kind of goes from like the dark blue to the orange from uh, improving to worsening. And in Georgia, we're still trending uh, in the wrong direction. So here are the diagnostic criteria for opioid use disorder. That's from the DSM-5. Um, so things like taking uh, lots of opioids for longer than intended, a persistent desire or un unsuccessful attempt to cut down, um, spending a lot of time and effort um, on recovering uh, or trying to get opioids, having cravings. Um, and you can go through all 11 criteria. And as you can see, a lot of the patients that come in and have been uh, having difficulty with opioid use disorder um, are going to have um, at least a few of those criteria uh, fit them. So a lot of our patients that we see in the hospital here can fit uh, easily six uh, out of the 11 criteria. So this is the cycle of the opioid uh, use. So <clears throat> uh, usually when someone starts get started on opioids, uh, it takes about uh, three weeks of consistent use for their uh, body to be physically dependent uh, on them. And that's why we kind of try to, uh, as much as we can, um, give the least amount of opioids that will be sufficient at treating the patient's acute issue. Usually withdrawal uh, happens uh, at any period uh, that lasts kind of from five to 21 days. Uh, and how long withdrawal lasts depends on uh, the half-life of the opioids used. So if something, if someone is used to taking something that has very, very long half-life, expect the withdrawal period to last much longer uh, than someone who's taking a short-acting opioid. Um, and symptoms generally start around two to three half-lives after uh, you stop giving them the opioid. Uh, so for example, uh, if the half-life is six hours, you should expect withdrawal symptoms around uh, 12 to 18 hours later. Um, and this is just um, a slide uh, kind of talking about um, how the opioid cycle in the brain works. So you start off with uh, binge and intoxication and that uh, involves the thalamus and the, global, uh, the globus pallidus. 
And then once the intoxication effects wear off, the patient starts to having having withdrawal, and that kind of involves uh, the limbic system and the amygdala, uh, and that kind of puts them under stress and. Um, that leads them to the next phase where they have preoccupation and anticipation. So their brain uh, is waiting and trying to do whatever it can to get back into the sort of blue phase where they are comfortable. So opioids, when they're used for a long time, they affect the pathophysiology uh, in the brain and it changes how uh, the thalamic and limbic system work and they kind of add the person who's uh, taking the opioids um, tends to know that they're doing something wrong but it's very very difficult for them to uh, make the right decisions because of the pressure that they feel that they are under so symptoms of opioid withdrawal uh, most of us are familiar so <clears throat> gi you have abdominal cramping uh, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting. You have flu-like symptoms like lacrimation, rhinorrhea, diaphoresis, and shivering. You have uh, sympathetic arousal, uh, and you have myalgias, arthralgias, and restless leg and uh, leg cramping. So I just wanted to make sure that we take a look at the COWS protocol. Um, so this is um, <clears throat> from up to date, this is how we kind of uh, objectively try to tell how badly someone's withdrawal symptoms are, uh, how you know bad they are. So essentially, the symptoms that we covered over here, uh, the nurses kind of assess the patient and try to figure out how badly they're withdrawing. So, for example, we check things like the heart rate and see how tachycardic they are. We check. Um, their sweating level, tremors, uh, how restless they are, things like yawning that they might have, their pupil size, uh, if they have erection, uh, and all of that kind of tells us where they're at. Because on the COWS protocol from 5 to 12 points, that kind of uh, means that the patient is in mild withdrawal, 13 to 24 uh, is moderate and 25 to 36 is moderately severe and then above 36 is severe. Um, this is for your reference is our COWS protocol from uh, EPIC for, for our hospital. So essentially uh, the nurses uh, are supposed to use the protocol here uh, to kind of put a number on how badly the patient is withdrawing and there are as needed medications that we give to combat each one of the potential withdrawal symptoms. Um, like for example, if the patient is having myalgias and restless leg and uh, anxiety, you can give them things like methocarbamol or hydroxyzine. If they're having difficulties uh, sleeping, you can give them sleep aids. Um, if they're having difficulties with pain, you give them a conservative pain management. And if they have issues with vomiting or diarrhea, you treat that. So this is essentially, you go based on uh, what the patient needs and you provide it so that you minimize how uncomfortable they are. And as you can tell, there are no opioids uh, in our um, COWS protocol. We don't, we don't give them if someone is withdrawing. Um, 
So the goal of the treatment is to make sure uh, CALS score of less than 12, technically 12 is when we start deciding to take the patient off of the protocol. Uh, but in a perfect world, it will be less than five so that they're not showing any withdrawal symptoms. Uh, other uh, reasons that you want to have them on the protocol is to decrease drug cravings or eliminate them. Um, and that's usually more successful if you have opioid substitution therapy, which I'm going to be talking about next. And of course, you kind of want to decrease the intoxicating effects that might happen if they end up relapsing um, for any reason. Um, just wanted to make sure to take a brief moment to discuss the stigma around patients with opioid use disorder. So um, this has kind of been... Um, shaping up with all the different, you know, social changes that we've had, uh, trying to be a little bit more sensitive and be, you know, person-centered when we're talking to the patients and try to kind of avoid demeaning language. So things that, um, you know, you should kind of try to avoid using because of, you know, how demeaning they are generally. Uh, things like addict, abuser, user, junkie, druggie, uh, alcoholic, drunk, uh, meth head, you know, all those um, <clears throat> terms that uh, we can kind of use uh, without thinking. And if we use them around the patient or uh, while we're taking care of the patient, they tend to kind of have a harmful effect about, you know, the patient being less likely to seek uh, help because they don't really want to be looked down up, up, uh, upon and abused. And things that you should use are things that are a little bit more scientific and more uh, describe exactly what you're seeing without being demeaning, like someone with substance use disorder, someone with alcohol use disorder, opioid use disorder, or someone in recovery, a negative uh, drug screen, a positive drug screen, um, and such. Essentially kind of being mindful to not uh, use abusive language unnecessarily. Um, in terms of opioids, kind of talking about them briefly, just so that we, you know, cover our bases types. So you go from uh, natural plant-based all the way to synthetic. So of course, the oldest ones, things like opium um, and heroin, codeine and morphine, all of those were refined from uh, natural plants and natural plants, and they have been used in the case of, you know, something like opium for, you know, hundreds of years. Um, and then from that, there are derivatives, the semi-synthetic opioids, uh, like oxycodone, hydrocodone, hydromorphone, and buprenorphine. Uh, those were kind of, uh, derivative of the above, um, and synthetic ones are kind of, they don't really share much in terms of, um, structure with, uh, original, uh, opioids from the plant. They are essentially uh, acting on the same receptors, though, and provide the same ability, but they tend to have um, different um, profiles because they each one of them, fentanyl, methadone, and tramadol, were devised um, to kind of target um, very specific niche use. Um, here are some uh, common uh, opioid half-lives. Remember, we spoke about um, how if an opioid has a shorter half-life, you tend to withdraw for a shorter period of time. If it does have longer half-life, the withdrawal period gets longer. 
um, which is, you know, a reason we, why we wouldn't really want to use something like, you know, MS content, uh, long acting morphine, uh, or, you know, any long acting opioids, uh, in general for someone who's having acute pain or acute issues, uh, something, for example, like a fentanyl, um, transdermal patch, you wouldn't really use that lightly or, uh, MS content, but, that's also an advantage if something has long half-life. If you are trying to uh, get someone over uh, opioid use disorder, and where we see that uh, being taken advantage of are things like using buprenorphine sublingually or orally uh, and using methadone uh, to help us with uh, opioid use disorder. So, uh, we have three big options uh, when someone is trying to enroll in medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder. I'm going to briefly cover the second and third, and the first one, Suboxone, is the main topic of my talk. So uh, briefly, Suboxone is a partial uh, opioid receptor agonist. We'll talk about it in more details in a, in a minute. Uh, methadone is a full agonist. So methadone essentially more or less replaces uh, other opioids when someone is on uh, substitution therapy using it. So it fully acts like an opioid. It uh, saturates the opioid receptors and it has uh, the full potential side effects of having uh, someone's respiratory um, drive go down. So uh, there is a chance of, um, you know, a higher chance of uh, having overdose on it than the other two on the list here, but it's still not as high generally as uh, overdosing on things like fentanyl. Um, the last option, naltrexone, this kind of takes an, uh, the, the opposite approach. It's an opioid receptor antagonist. The way it works is that it essentially uh, blocks all the opioid receptors uh, from getting used up by any opioid that the patient takes. So the idea is that if a patient is on naltrexone um, and they take something, they kind of have a relapse or inject uh, any kind of opioid, they're not going to have the high, which kind of defeats the purpose and ends up being a waste for them. Uh, naltrexone is great. The only issue with it is that um, the barrier to starting on it is pretty high. Um, for naltrexone, the barrier generally tends to be you need to be off of opioids for a very long time, and you need to show that uh, you are committed to not uh, using uh, any opioids in the foreseeable future to qualify to be started on it. And for that reason, it tends to not be utilized nearly as much as the other two. And I forgot to mention for methadone, generally the barrier for starting patients on it um, is that you need to, you can only get it from uh, a methadone clinic. Uh, generally you need to get the dose at the clinic uh, the first uh, few times you need to be observed to see what, where your level is at, where you kind of what kind of uh, dose you're going to need and where you're going to start having side effects. You're going to need to go in the beginning to the methadone clinic daily, and then you're going to need to go to the methadone clinic in very short interval after that. So it requires, um, 
it's a lot of commitment in the, on the front end from the patient. And that's kind of the biggest barrier. Um, Suboxone generally at this moment out of the three options is the easiest to start. And I'll get to that in a minute. <clears throat> so Suboxone is the brand name um, for buprenorphine when we combine it with naloxone. Uh, the reason that uh, naloxone was added to uh, buprenorphine is because naloxone, like naltrexone, kind of uh, acts as a deterrent uh, because it essentially prevents. In, when the <clears throat> when buprenorphine was first given uh, to patients with addiction, it was given orally, um, and what they end up, what patients ended up having is that they used to kind of crush the pills and inject them. So naloxone was kind of the solution to prevent that uh, because it would potentially induce, uh, the idea is that it would induce withdrawal if you inject, um, if you inject your uh, suboxone uh, to try to get a high through that. Um, and if it's used orally, it has a really poor uh, sublingual bioavailability. So uh, that's kind of the idea anyway. There is currently debate as to whether naloxone is really that effective in terms of the <clears throat> prevention, aside from people being scared to withdraw. But at the moment, uh, the biggest way that you can give someone uh, buprenorphine uh, in terms of trying to uh, have them on medication-assisted treatment, you, you give it with naloxone as the brand name, you know, suboxone. Um, and back to pathophysiology, it, it's a high affinity partial opioid agonist. Uh, it essentially binds very, very strongly to the point of displacing uh, full uh, opioid agonists um, and preventing the full opioid agonists like any of the opioids from uh, getting in and attaching themselves to the receptors. Uh, so it's even if you take uh, opioids while you're on something like buprenorphine, uh, you're not going to have as much of an effect because it's so much more uh, potent at staying attached to those uh, opioid receptors. And generally, <clears throat> buprenorphine it brings relief to patients who are withdrawing from opioids because it does have partial agonist effects. So uh, they're not going to have as many um, <clears throat> issues with side effects and withdrawal. But uh, the advantage, advantage that the partial agonist uh, property has is that there is a ceiling, uh, which I'm going to discuss in the next slide. So buprenorphine, the way it works is that there is a ceiling on how effective it is in uh, activating the opioid receptors. And no matter, I mean, most doses, you will not be passing uh, that ceiling that you can see in the graph. Um, <clears throat> and that's kind of a unique thing about propionorphine specifically. Uh, but that uh, effect kind of uh, brings with it the difficulty of uh, potentially starting uh, buprenorphine, the main difficulty is uh, precipitated withdrawal because of the partial agonist effect that it has. Uh, what you can do is that you can induce uh, withdrawal if someone has recently uh, received opioids. So if someone has all the receptors filled with heroin, for example, and you give them a dose of buprenorphine, 
uh, what you're going to end up doing is that the buprenorphine is going to displace the heroin and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a lot less effective than the heroin was. So you're going to essentially put the patient in withdrawal and it tends to be very, very uh, painful and unpleasant. And the patients kind of um, are wary of that. And there are a lot of different strategies that are being studied currently to see how uh, buprenorphine can be initiated on someone who recently used opioids. Uh, things like microdosing uh, and things of that nature that I'm not going to discuss during this lecture, uh, but I'm kind of going to allude to them. Um, <clears throat> and that's it for this slide. Um, I picked a, <clears throat> an article uh, that was published uh, in the British uh, Medical Journal. It's a meta-analysis of several studies that studied methadone and buprenorphine. Uh, use over very long periods of time, specifically in methadone, because methadone has been used for a very long time since the 70s. But prunorphin is more recent, only since 2010, it has seen uh, widespread use. So the, the <clears throat> this particular study essentially uh, took a look at the different uh, cohort studies that were done since the 1970s up until now. And it looked at uh, prevention of mortality as it, the main um, thing that it was looking at uh, to see if, uh, if that is improved by uh, giving someone methadone or buprenorphine. So study design, it's a systematic review and meta-analysis. Uh, they had a lot of exclusion criteria. Their idea is uh, that they uh, wanted to make sure that uh, you know, there of course were human participants. It was always original research. It was higher quality uh, studies. Um, and they avoided uh, including pa uh, patients who are in prison or recently released from prison in the study. Uh, they, you had to be uh, under medical treatment. Uh, if the treatment was unknown, studies were excluded from being included in this meta-analysis. Like for example, there are a lot of uh, different um, withdrawal kind of um, programs where you have more social and um, psychological kind of um, approach to preventing relapses. So those were not included. It was only medical treatment. And <clears throat> they had to, the study had, in order to be included, they had to include uh, overdose mortality as an outcome. And they, you ha they had to be able to uh, tell the difference between mortality when the patients were in or out of treatment. Uh, so they ended up uh, starting off with 2033 studies and through exclusion, they ended up uh, studying 20 um, different studies in this meta-analysis. And this uh, slide and the next are the biggest two kind of uh, results that came out of this meta-analysis. So uh, as you can see, all the studies are kind of uh, listed here. And um, just to remind you that the, the horizontal lines kind of give us the 95% uh, confidence interval. Uh, and in this particular slide, we're looking at all-cause mortality. So uh, the dark blue is uh, referencing patients who are in treatment, and the one with the white 
references patients who are out of treatment. And the top of the page is methadone. And as you can see, the study was mostly dominated by methadone because of how uh, much data, uh, how much more data there was on it. And on the bottom, you can see buprenorphine. Um, but in general, the takeaway from this, most of the studies uh, did not really have a ton of overlap on the 95% confidence interval. There were a couple of exceptions, as you can see in the 1995 and 1998 studies. Um, and here in buprenorphine in the 2010 Cornish study. But in general, uh, every single study showed that there was decrease in all-cause mortality uh, whenever you had the patient in treatment as opposed to out of treatment. And as you can see, the collective uh, overall uh, improvement with the diamond uh, patterns, there was a huge difference between in treatment and out of treatment. And I'll quantify this on a slide com coming up. Um, <clears throat> for the buprenorphine, the overall that combine all the studies, the diamonds kind of overlapped, meaning that the confidence interval at the 95% was kind of, um, there was an overlap there, but that's mostly because of uh, the fewer studies that were involved. Um, and hopefully that gets better with time. This, is, uh, this slide was all-cause mortality. This is very specific to uh, overdose mortality, when overdose was listed as a reason uh, for the patient's death. And uh, it essentially shows a similar finding where there is a big difference between uh, mortality in patients who were on or not in treatment or out of treatment. And this is the conclusion that the study uh, came to. Um, in case of methadone, there was an average reduction of 25 deaths per 1,000 person years. So uh, essentially either 1,000 people, just to cover 1,000 person years, like you know, 1,000 people uh, followed for a year or followed for however many years. Um, like for example, if you follow 1,000 people for a year, that's 1,000 person year. If you follow 500 people for two years, that's 1,000 person year. So there were 25 deaths reduction per thousand uh, with a 95% confidence interval that's going from 14 to 36 deaths. Uh, and for, for buprenorphine, again, the number is lower, but still um, pretty um, close to being statistically significant, although it does cross to negative one when you look at the 95% confidence interval. Again, the fault here most likely lies with the fact that there were fewer studies uh, looking in, at buprenorphine. Um, so that kind of um, is it for the, <clears throat> for the BMJ article. So we're kind of going to switch gears, talk a little bit about the current policy um, so that we know what's, uh, what's we have available and what uh, we can do with this information. So uh, part of the reason I uh, picked this topic was because of the recent change in uh, prescription requirements for buprenorphine. So uh, as of uh, the end of last year, uh, you no longer need an X waiver uh, from the DEA uh, to be able to prescribe buprenorphine. Uh, everyone uh, who has a current DEA license that has Schedule 3 prescription, uh, which pretty much is going to be everyone uh, who has a full license, 
essentially, if you can prescribe restricted substances, you, you're going to end up being able to prescribe buprenorphine. But the caveat here is that uh, the DEA wanted to make sure that everyone who prescribes that medication has enough training. So it's, the requirement is that you have at least eight hours of training uh, in prescribing uh, the medication and being able to differentiate, you know, how, how to prescribe it. And there are several courses on several organizational websites that kind of you can use to help satisfy those eight hours uh, of training. Uh, or if you are part of a program that uh, includes in it uh, at, least, um, five, um, at least eight hours of training for the residents, uh, you can also prescribe uh, so speaking to, you know, to us, the residents, generally, most likely, uh, none of us have gone through this, but uh, that's something that, you know, eventually, hopefully, most of us will work on getting uh, licensed to uh, be able to prescribe it, because it's helpful in general to be able to, as long as you're working, whether it's inpatient or outpatient in general medicine. Um, <clears throat> Current hospital policy, I just wanted to make sure I mentioned that as well, what we have available here in the hospital. So uh, in the hospital, in the inpatient setting, we don't have Suboxone, we have Subutex only, which is uh, only Bopronorphin without the Naloxone. And the idea here is that uh, we're going to be administering the medication to the patients uh, and we we'll use sublingual as well. So the risk of injection it's really not high when you're giving the patient uh, the film to put on the tongue. Um, so that's why we use Subutex. Um, <clears throat> who can prescribe it? Right now, uh, the people that are known to me that um, have gone through the training and is previously had the X waiver, but now have the training are Dr. Austin and Dr. Robinson. So those are the people that you can ask uh, if someone is not currently on uh, buprenorphine and you would like to start them on it to initiate therapy, those are the two that can help you uh, initiate therapy inpatient if you have not gone and uh, did, done the training yourself. In the ER, uh, this is a, a recent um, development. They now have an opioid user uh, order set uh, for medication-assisted uh, treatment. Uh, so ER physicians can prescribe seven days of Suboxone um, to start the patient who comes in with opioid um, use disorder who's wanting to uh, be started on substitution therapy. So they have the ability to give them seven days and connect them with resources um, to, to keep getting the prescription after the seven days are over. I uh, just wanted for completion's sake, Laurelwood here, patients who are admitted for opioid uh, use disorder and withdrawal, they don't start patients on induction therapy in Laurelwood, but they're kind of working on how to figure out how to do that in the future. Um, so someone, if someone is uh, being discharged on buprenorphine, especially if they uh, get started on it here, the three things that you have to make sure to do, uh, arrange follow-up with a uh, buprenorphine prescriber. Uh, here, I put in uh, a link to the SAMHSA uh, website. You can easily look it up, Google it, as, and see who registered uh, as an buprenorphine prescriber uh, in the immediate area. You put your zip code and you see who's the closest prescriber. 
make sure to prescribe them naloxone in case they have uh, a relapse or an overdose and make sure to call Laura Wood so that they can provide them with um, educational material and provide them with who to call and uh, kind of more, uh, more education is never really gonna hurt. Um, and yeah, thank you to Dr. Austin and Dr. Miles. Both of them were very helpful in uh, at least, you know, helping me figure out the current policies and what we have available in the hospital. Uh, here are my references. And here's the survey uh, link and QR code. And um, I will now uh, ask if anyone has any questions. Thank you, Dr. Tekla. If you're viewing online and you have a question, please answer and um, ask it in the Q&A chat and we'll read that off for you. Any questions or comments in the room? Here we go. Thank you, Dr. Tekla. I was wondering with the training, uh, how do you sign up for the training and where is it available at? It's, C it's CME hours. Uh, they're essentially, if uh, you look it up, I forgot to write the names of the organizations that have them, but there are several. Um, uh, I think it's the Society of Addiction Medicine was one of them. The different societies have eight hour courses um, that you can sign up as CME training. It's very specific to satisfy that requirement. And they were developed over the past six months. So it's kind of a developing uh, thing, I'm sure more courses are going to be available. I should have put a link to at least one of them, but it's an easy Google search kind of a way. Thank you. No problem. Any other questions or comments? And, oh, here we go. Hey, Dr. Takla, was there any mention of like um, social support in kind of the research that you were doing? Like, if you have good social support, does that support like uh, buprenorphine compliance? Not in the meta-analysis uh, per se, generally. Um, I mean, not based on research, but if, if someone uh, who is getting, you know, medic medical assisted uh, therapy has uh, social support to help them um, kind of avoid getting back into using uh, illicit uh, drugs, they tend to do better, but um, nothing kind of from the article that I've looked at or the research I did for the topic. Anything else? Thank you, Dr. Takla. Thank you.